Now, I kind of did a very brief tot up of the numbers and it must have been over a thousand people who knew somebody or personally had suffered with, with some form of mental health. Thank you for downloading. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world, an aspect of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, Ian Oliver, also known as the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Eagle-eared listeners may notice I didn't do a podcast last week. Eagle-eyed readers may notice the title and subject matter of this podcast and go, but that's not what you said last time. The two are connected, and I'll come on to that point later. But before that, let me recap all the other things that have been going on in the past fortnight. Fortnight. A word that, until recently, I didn't know was a Britishism. Two weeks. The word seems to have developed from the longer phrase 14 nights in Middle English, so it's a perfectly logical word. A similar word that has since been lost is senite, because English already has a perfectly cromulent word for that, weak. So how are you all this senite? I haven't had any recurrence of my headaches this past fortnight, despite a few beers along the way. Certainly not as many beers as I had been drinking. I've definitely cut down quite considerably, and I do feel a bit healthier now. The bathroom scales in my friend's house claim I'm 91.6 kilograms. I don't know if this is a standard weight for someone of my height and demographic, but I'm pretty comfortable with it. I did have a couple of nights on the alcohol a couple of weeks ago, though. Indeed, when I was editing my previous podcast in the pub below the hostel I was staying in, near Victoria in London. I was down there to meet my videographer friend Joe from This Way Up Travel. He's the chap who's working on making the documentary around the hike I did last year across Great Britain. But one of his latest ideas is to do more filming in and around London. This is where I come in. As one of my entire blog strands is around the fact that everywhere is interesting and people should explore places closer to home to find them. I've already written about some of the lesser boroughs of London, and at some point soon I'll be doing a couple of podcast episodes on them. So because I know quite a bit about London in general, more than he does, Joe sees me as the perfect person to present a stroke voiceover his filming with interesting tidbits. Note that I live in Sheffield, and he lives in, uh, oh yeah, Hackney, and was brought up in Bromley. Anyway, we didn't do much filming in the end, due to the weather being not terribly friendly. Strong wind, with occasional downpours. So we decided to do a bit of wandering around the borough of Camden, which is both larger than you expect, and a rather peculiar shape. When I've been researching for my pods and blogs, I've keep finding museums and points of interest that I've gone, ooh, what borough is that in? What, Camden again? After a bit of filming at the Angel Islington and Camden Market, we wandered around the Jewish History Museum before grabbing lunch. One thing that Joe suggested after we'd relocated to a pub in Camden Town to avoid the rain, was that I ought to re-examine the adverts that I'd posted on Fiverr, and which, incidentally, I've not had any offers from yet, to stop trying to cover all bases in one advert and make lots of different posts for each different thing I want to do. I haven't done this yet, obviously. Related to this, as I mentioned in my last pod that might happen, my friend Amy did indeed give me a book that I could record my reading for her. 
it's Inferno by Dan Brown, at about 149,600 words. Yeah, I mean, for comparison, my podcasts average between about five and 7,000, so either she's supreme confidence in me, or she wants to humour me by giving me a tone like that so she can say, well, at least I tried to encourage you, even though it's slightly disconcerting. Yeah, we'll see. No, I haven't started it yet either. We had another storm over the weekend, but not quite as virulent as the ones earlier in the year. As I type this, looking out the window, I see sunshine, and this seems to have been the pattern this year, stormy weekends and drier weekdays, although as you heard earlier, not completely dry. I am getting a little bored of the rain, and I'm fully aware that that's what makes the grass green and the flowers grow, but there's a difference between the two parts of the sentence, average annual rainfall, and in a month. Fortunately, the pattern has been for the storms to hit on Saturday lunchtimes. This has been very useful for my parkrun escapades because running in the rain is not often on my list of joyous things to do on a Saturday morning. Obviously I grew up as a cross-country runner and we used to have races on the Saturday morning so I've run in hail and snow before now but that was when I had to and I do parkrun for fun. I was out both Saturdays since my last podcast, both of them at my usual run at Sheffield Castle. The first was in glorious sunshine and I unexpectedly smashed my personal best to finish in 26 minutes 16 seconds, which still makes me a bad average, but I've gone through life being average, so that's pretty cool. The following week was duller and damper, and they had some issues with their timing equipment. So, that I ran 26 minutes dead despite not feeling particularly swift means I'm counting on it as a very unofficial. One point of note about this latest run, though, is that I finally met up with one of the other barefoot runners in the Sheffield area, Hannah. She's both younger and fitter than me, so I only saw her briefly at the start and the end. In the run, she was well over a minute in front. It's the Sheffield Half Marathon later in the month. I still haven't decided if I'm going to enter it yet. I want to wait until the last minute to check out my fitness level for jogging such a distance. That this week seems to be quite sunny means I can start to willingly drag myself out for a training run in the roads, which will be a good step. Yeah, the pavements here in Sheffield are pretty smooth, so it's not a concern to jog barefoot on them. Not sure about the roads at the far end of the Half Marathon course, though Hannah has before and will be again barefoot for the Half Marathon then she's an expert. I've also found myself busy Sundays recently. Now I don't know how well what I'm about to say is going to go down with my audience, but certainly a couple of the friends I've told have been quite positive. Since arriving in Sheffield, so covering three Sundays, I've been popping to church. Now, although it's taking place in a traditional-looking church building, it's actually a Grade 2 listed building constructed around 1700, and the first non-conformist chapel built in Sheffield, it's, well, it's Unitarian, obviously. And I've known about Unitarians for quite a while, and I've always felt their worldview ebbed closely to mine. Plus, of course, their remit is quite vague. From liberal Christians at one end to avowed atheists at the other, they have a space for pretty much everyone in between, so services don't feel particularly, as my uncle might say, God-bothering. Indeed, one of my online friends is a religious educator for the Universalist Unitarians in Houston, Texas, and despite knowing of her maybe ten years, I've still no idea what she herself actually believes. Partly my attendance is to try find my tribe, probably my phrase of 2020, spiritually, but I'm finding it's also helping me in terms of my own mindset. Recent subjects spoken about have included letting go and a sense of place, both of which are things close to my own heart, certainly at the moment. Give me a year and I might end up as a Unitarian lay preacher. I mean, it's no different from podcasting about political thoughts, right? <laughs> now, for once, all this is important to what I want to talk about on this podcast. If you remember last time, I said I was going to do ethical travel. Well, that didn't happen. Last week, when I was coming to write it up, I simply didn't feel up to doing it. I felt I'd be better served doing something less mentally strenuous and more aligned with self-care. 
So that's exactly what I did. I sat on my bed and read books. That the books needed to be back within the library system in Nottinghamshire the next day, otherwise I'd be paying a fine, may well have also been a factor. And yes, I could have renewed them, but there were two I'd already finished at that point as well, so didn't really see the point in keeping them. One of the books I did renew, though, was a self-help book on social anxiety. Now, it may surprise you to know that someone like me would say that, given that I travel around the world, usually on my own, and often to more unusual destinations where tourist infrastructure might be a bit less coherent and forgiving. See, when people in my everyday life come across me for the first time and I'm discussing my travel style with them, they come to a number of conclusions. Firstly, that I'm completely potty and foolhardy, obviously, but then that I'm incredibly brave. Oh, I could never do anything like that. Something I hear quite often, along with other less tactful comments along the lines of, when will you ever settle down like a normal person? That's my mother. You know this. Leaving the latter comments aside, the whole you're so brave thing I have major issues with. I certainly don't feel brave. In fact, very often I feel incredibly self-conscious, wary and um, anxious. As I've discussed before in previous pods, I'm an introvert, travel solo, often to obscure places, as I say. So much of the time when I travel, it's me, only me, in an alien culture and a foreign language. Normally, I can cope, or at least I do cope. A combination of bloody-minded determinism and general curiosity sees me through. But there have certainly been times when I've shut myself in my room for hours on end, unable to face the everyday life that's happening outside. A couple of times I've even come home sooner than I anticipated because of what was going on in my head. It was just too distracting, too loud. And I'll talk about those situations later, as I also have issues with mild depression. See, the thing is, every so often I have a wobble usually caused by nothing more than a word, a phrase, a reaction by others, or just one little thing that sets me off down a road of thinking too much negatively. It's not as if I can't anticipate it either. Every single time I fly into somewhere new, I get the same thought process in my head. Will I be understood? Will I be laughed at? Will I cope with this? I do my best with specific bits of knowledge beforehand, like how do you catch a bus, how do you pay for it, etc. Remember, knowledge is power. And usually it's enough, but sometimes, sometimes the demons win. What makes it all the worse for me is I've an overdeveloped fear of failure. Again, I'll talk about this shortly. Very often, though, for me, it's the social angle I find hardest to deal with. My introversion, coupled with a fear of standing out, of having low self-confidence in what I do, means that I'll, in my head, always be the obvious foreigner, and people will laugh at my attempt to communicate, or even just the way I present myself. And it means I can barely introduce myself to a crowd of people. It takes me a great deal of self-belief to even go in a shop in some foreign cultures, and sometimes the thought of going somewhere new and arranging everything on the spot fills me with dread. And yet, I've done all this before, I've travelled solo to so many different places so many times, so why I should still feel like this so often is a complete mystery to me. Often, the little things build up in my mind, even once I've left the airport and have spent a little time in the new country. Sometimes this is the build-up of lots of little things, and in a way this is... For example, partly what happened to me in Indonesia and why I came home earlier there rather than explore the country at length. Note that this was during my year out a few years ago. My original intention had been to travel for the whole year, but I think I was just too inexperienced for that. And after two and a half months of travel, I was feeling quite mentally raw. At the time, I also had the added issue of having a partner back home who was, at the time, uh, being quite clingy and needy. One of the many, many reasons I'm single is because I'm not very attentive and I prefer being with people who are equally, I guess, casual is the word. Obviously, travelling for a long period of time when your partner is back home isn't exactly a great situation, but I'm kind of used to long-distance relationships and I'm fine with them. She, however, had not and was not. So even a couple of weeks beforehand, I was having emotionally draining conversations on a regular basis with her. 
With that as a background, the little things that happened in Indonesia just built up and knocked me a bit more than they had any right to. Even before I got there, my plans for the country had had to change because Timor-Leste had a public holiday, so I couldn't get a visa, so I couldn't go overland into West Timor and instead had to fly to Bali, a place that I had no intention of visiting. Once there, I couldn't draw money out of the ATM at the airport because the machines didn't like my card. When I finally did manage to get money, I found there was a really low limit per transaction, meaning I knew I'd have to go through the process again in a much more rural location. I'm sure I got majorly overcharged for one of my bus journeys. That I made it to a lovely village with a superb and chilled hostel but couldn't spend a third night in it as it was full, but nowhere else for the next couple of nights seemed both any good and available. That some of the places I planned to go on to later were really into the unknown and finding any information about them, let alone booking anything, was proving tricky. That it was too hot and humid, uncomfortably so. It just all affected my mood a little, exacerbating the other issues. None of those things were in any way bad and easily copable with. Um, but having them all happen with a background of already feeling fragile, I guess I just couldn't cope. I'm sure it would have all worked out fine had I stayed, but equally, because of the way I was feeling, mentally, I couldn't be at all certain that I wouldn't just have ended up feeling worse. And the one important point to know about travelling is that you have to enjoy it. There's no point forcing yourself to go somewhere, to continue to be somewhere, if you know you won't enjoy it, as that'll just lead you to end up hating the place and possibly even hate travelling in general. It was a weird place for it to happen, though. I only ended up spending four or five days in Bali, in Padang Bai, which, if you don't know it, it's a very calming and quiet town that most people simply use as a pass-through on the way to Lombok or the Gili Islands. The country itself is beautiful, relatively cheap, varied and interesting. Indeed, it should be the perfect place to explore and spend some time to rest and chill exactly away from all of these mental roadblocks. It's weird how things happen. But anyway, I sat on the balcony of the hostel, cried for ten minutes and then booked a flight home for the next day. I toyed with the idea of leaving to go somewhere else, but I realised it probably wouldn't help. I'd just be having the same feelings surrounded by different scenery. So going home to sort out the issues might well have been the best thing to do in my head. I had similar issues seven or eight months later when, instead of travelling down eastern Africa for a couple of months, I had less than a week in Ethiopia before coming home. Here, the problem was mainly financial. I was getting very worried I wouldn't be able to afford the trip, so I was concentrating too much on not spending money, which in turn was making me overthink about everything from places to stay to skipping meals. I think in the space of three days all I had to eat were two burgers, and even for me that's unsustainable, especially given how much I walk. This affected how I saw the country as well. I couldn't enjoy my time there. And again, every little thing that went wrong, from not being allowed to get the right visa, to not being able to find my original guest house at the start of the trip, to always feeling stared at by the locals, just got to me. I know I was overreacting on the bad side, but to be honest, a part of me was thinking, your heart's not in this. It was a bad decision. At least you've come out to find that out. I toyed with the idea again of changing plans completely and, for example, flying down to South Africa immediately, where I figured I'd probably enjoy the backpacker vibe more. But in the end, I figured there was only one logical thing to do. Maybe I'd simply been travelling too much. Maybe I was only doing this because I said to myself that I would, rather than for any logical reason or any real enjoyment. So my two-month trip that was supposed to be Dubai, East and Southern Africa lasted a week and a half. Maybe with hindsight I'd have been better off going to somewhere like South America instead. That had been the other option at the time. At least it would have been somewhere different, perhaps with a more appropriate vibe for me at the time. But sometimes you don't know what's going to happen until you get there. I think it was very much right place, wrong time. I do intend to go back and visit both Indonesia and Ethiopia at some point in the future. Neither of my experiences there were a bad reflection on the countries, but more on my mental state at the time of my visit. 
Uh, a few months later, after going back to work, I did a three-week jaunt to the bottom half of that intended trip from Zambia down to South Africa. It was fabulous and enjoyable, mainly because I was in a much fresher state of mind at the time. Yet part of my problem is, if I don't do what I intended to do, as I said earlier, first time, I leave myself open to the belief that that given trip has been a failure, both in my eyes and in the eyes of everyone I know. In my head, if I don't do everything I've set out to do, I've failed and I've let people down that I've told my plans to. It's entirely in my head. My friends are all, but look at what you did achieve. But I still see what I didn't manage more strongly than what I did. It's like, if I say I was going to do a lot of travelling to interesting places and see all these wonderful stuff, but then if I decide that I don't because I'm too much of a wuss, then I'll have let myself and the world down, and that I won't be able to be trusted when I say I'm going to these places again. Unreliable. Easily prone to bracking out. Ultimately, of course, it isn't, and I'm not. Either side of those setbacks, I did experience a lot I wouldn't have expected to have the opportunity to, and obviously nothing ever goes to plan. I may have missed out on much of South America and remote Indonesia, but I've certainly seen and experienced the bulk of what I set out to see. Uh, for example, Chernobyl, the Aral Sea, West Africa. And in myself, I feel a much more self-confident person having done so, especially as much of it was solo travel. Just not self-confident enough, I guess. Maybe in part I start to believe that I'm only travelling to these places because I said to myself I would, rather than for any logical reasons or for any real enjoyment. Maybe also there's the feeling that, hey, I've got this opportunity to go to places. If I don't take it, then what the heck am I doing? Wasting my life and someone else could have had that chance and they could have done it better. In response, my friends all tended to say the same things, that these places will always be there and it's better to do what you enjoy rather than forcing yourself through them because you feel you have to. And that's definitely true. And there's a danger here of comparing myself to other people. It's easy to do on the internet, especially Instagram. Perfectly posed pictures in picturesque places. Beautiful people in beautiful surroundings with nary a whisper about the troubles they had getting there or any indication that their life and travels are anything but serene. Of course, we all know it's a lie, but it often feels really hard to talk about the bad feelings, about the bad things, about the way you feel, lest it detract from the image of travel. Similarly, across much of the travel blogosphere, there seems to be a desire to say yes to everything. That fear of missing out, those 23 places to see before you die, those quit-your-job memes, etc. Which is great, it's fantastic, everyone needs something to aim for, a dream to fulfil. But sometimes those dreams are unrealistic in the short term. And yet it's again hard to live up to. And that you're not at that level means I'm not worthy, I'm not as good as they are. It's also about personality. Even despite the issues that go wrong, and they do, there's a whole bunch of people out there who seem to be able to go travelling for months at a time without any major problems, or that they bust through the problems, take them in the stride and not dwell on them. I always imagine these people to either be much more self-confident than I am, or be travelling with someone else, and that can help share the stress. With regard to the latter, I think my last-minute style and air of casualness tend to chide with most people. The, oh, it'll get done eventually, don't worry about it now kind of attitude. I know certainly from the folks I used to work with that they were amazed that I've done less organisation than they'd expect for a trip like the ones I do. But then they're also amazed I only travel with hand luggage. My style of holiday in general is very different from theirs. It's the former that rankles with me more and reminds me why I shouldn't compare. They always come across as the sort of people who can communicate in foreign languages, or if they can't, aren't afraid to look the fool. They all act self-assured, comfortable and confident in who they are, and this stands at strong odds to me, the introvert with strong issues with promoting themselves and speaking in public. To be fair, I have improved over time. Uh, one thing my travel style does do is force you into anxious situations in the first place. Maybe this is what people who first meet me mean when they say, you're brave, because I travel solo, because I tend to go to places off the beaten track where few of the tourists are around and where the local infrastructure isn't fully geared up to handle them anyway. I often have no choice but not to be as insular or quiet. It kills me, but I have to do it anyway. 
My fears are usually unfounded, at least in the moment. I don't spend the day locked in my accommodation. I do catch local buses. I'll concede I tend to eat less because I'll often not know how cafes work. Do I sit down first? Do I order at the counter first? And I'll eat more street food because it's much easier to point, plus the price will often be written in full view so I don't have to mither about trying to understand what the vendor says and can easily just hand over appropriate money. But often, having done it once makes me feel a bit easier in myself. But only a bit. Only until the next conversation. I may have improved, but it's only marginal. It's why I feel the only way I'd ever learn a foreign language is to be forced into it. It's one reason I walk a lot, so I don't have to brave public transport until I'm comfortable knowing what to do. It's one reason I never ask for directions and instead use maps. It's one reason I go food shopping in supermarkets rather than corner shops and street markets. It's one reason I like shopping online for things like nail varnish and clothing. I do all of these things even at home in the UK, so imagine how I feel in a foreign environment. And on the rare occasions that I try, tumbleweed. In a social setting, if I make a joke, no one even giggles. If someone else makes almost the same joke, the whole table erupts in raucous laughter. If I go into a shop, I'll sometimes have to ask several times because the shopkeeper doesn't understand what I'm saying or it isn't clear what I want, often because I can't make myself clear and I fall over my words. If I come up with an idea, it's ignored, so it's often just easier to stay silent and not project myself. I guess I also don't like being the focus of attention, or at least I don't like it where I'm absolutely not in control, where I'm not fully knowledgeable about every little detail. I used to be a data analyst. And this meant I occasionally had to create presentations for both my stakeholders and upper management. Apart from difficulties in creating the presentation itself because I lacked conceptual vision, I had no problem standing in front of an audience and giving that presentation. And why? Because I made sure I knew my stuff before we started. I made sure I could explain every eventuality, every last detail. You should see the length of my caveats. In the real world, this is much harder to do. And I don't want to be seen as, well, the idiot who knows everything. Did you hear what he asked? Ah, look at him, this strange man. Everyone laugh at him. I'm aware this doesn't happen. But equally, that's exactly how it feels when I walk into a shop and ask for something. I feel like everyone's looking at me, thinking how foolish I am, how I don't deserve to be there because I'm just a nothing they'd rather not have to deal with. I don't even like using the phone. I dislike answering it and being put on the spot by someone at the other end. And I absolutely hate making phone calls as I feel like I'm interrupting someone doing something much more important, that what I have to say is inconsequential and irrelevant, and that the person I've called would rather not speak to me, even if it's their job to speak to me. I also get very tongue-tied, I hesitate, I can't think clearly at all, I mumble, and I just don't project myself with any degree of confidence. I find it very hard to think off the cuff. I could never do improvisation, for instance. As an aside, you may be interested to know that I write every word of this podcast, even down to the casual asides. And I write it how I would naturally read it, even putting things in brackets, even putting in the pauses for effect, and the subtle voice pitch changes. Because there's absolutely no way I could fluently reel off even a sentence if it wasn't written down. I'd forget what I'd already said, never mind what I wanted to say, and the whole thing would be an unmitigated disaster, even with the power of editing. Connected with this, I'm also really bad at selling myself. I find it hard enough to answer casual, what is your blog about, conversations on other people's guest posts, never mind actually promoting what I'm good at at sites like Fiverr. It's why, apart from my initial automated tweets, I rarely promote my blog or podcast on social media. You'll almost never see tweets from me reminding people that old pods exist. It's also why I never made money from the blog, because almost no one knows it exists. Because I don't talk about it. Because I don't like promoting myself. There's two aspects to this. Firstly, I'm not a salesman, so I find it hard to talk about myself and what I do without my overthinking it and feeling it all sounds quite slimy and I'm only talking to you because I want you to do something for me. I automatically think I'd come across as, I'm just using you to get clicks. The other reason is because, as alluded earlier, I genuinely think other people are better at this than I. All of it. 
different people, of course, but still, there's so many bloggers out there writing so much stuff that more people want to read, that more people will find useful. And I'm here looking a bit like a history textbook, old, worn and slightly smelly. This, of course, leads to a problem. Two years ago, I was made redundant. My feeling was that I could use this as an opportunity to take what I can do and make a couple of side careers out of it, get enough to get by and fund my travel obsessions and generally just take it easy for a while. This hasn't happened. Instead, I've spent most of my money on beer and travel, earned nothing, and now I have to face up to the fact that unless I want to do something pretty damn sharpish, I'm going to have to go back to a full-time office job, and no one wants that. But of course, because I don't have that faith in myself, because I don't have that self-confidence in what I do, nor in how to promote myself, I fear that's exactly what's going to happen, and that's not going to do my mental health any good at all. There have been times when I've been lying in bed, still in bed at like 3pm, and I just haven't had the wherewithal to get up because I don't see the point, because I don't have the self-belief that anything I do will make my life better, or make anyone's life better. I descended into a funk towards the end of December, with the soundtrack of a rapidly chaotic country imploding on itself, and only beer keeping me sane, feeling helpless to my own and society's failings, knowing that I can't make a difference. And then I spend my time distracting myself with Twitter because it's much easier in the short term than attempting to do anything about it because doing something is hard and doomed to failure because I'm no good at it so I know it won't work. And that becomes a circular concept because then I lie in bed thinking it's all going to hell and there's nothing I can do, even more. This is kind of why I moved to Sheffield, pretty much. Sometimes I feel changing my environment helps my mood. It works when I travel, surprisingly. I've felt in a low place in several places across the world and moving on to a new town or country does sometimes work. I'm grateful to Vilnius and Adelaide for lifting my spirits when I've been feeling down in the previous city. But as you heard earlier, sometimes what I need is to simply reset myself and start anew. Certainly uh, that I've been doing stuff here is a good beginning. Both Parkrun and the Universalist Church are kind of social activities that force me to come out of my shell that bit more. And that I'm drinking far less beer can only be a good thing. But there's so much more I need to do, so many more places I need to brave, so many more things I need to promote myself for. It's just a question of will I have the confidence in myself to do it. Sorry about that. I know it sounds like one heck of a self-focused brain dump stroke therapy session that you probably didn't need on a Thursday. Next week I'm handing pretty much the whole pod over to you though. I've got several people who want to talk about how mental health affects them when they travel, so hopefully that'll be much more interesting and relatable. Until then, keep washing your hands, and if you're feeling off-colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Kirkby and Ashfield studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or you can email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. Until next time, have a safe journey. Bye for now.